Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week, I speak to two supporters of the Fair Checks campaign, led by Transform Justice and Unlock, which is calling for a fresh start to the UK's outdated criminal records system. My first guest is Sir Richard Branson, founder of The Virgin Group. We discuss why no one should be judged by their worst moment and his commitment to offering employment opportunities for those with a criminal record. He also raises justice reform issues close to his heart, such as treating drugs as a health rather than a criminal issue, and also the importance of abolishing the death penalty. My second guest is Paula Harriet, Head of Prisoner Involvement at the Prison Reform Trust, who speaks from first-hand experience about the adverse impact excessive criminal record checks can have, and why she supports the Fair Checks campaign. My name is Richard Branson, and I have spent a lifetime building Virgin and, and um, trying to tackle issues that I feel passionately about. And particularly when it comes to criminal justice, which is a topic, obviously, as you know, very close to my heart as well. Um, you have been quite vocal over the years about giving people a second chance, particularly in relation to people coming out of prison and access to jobs. What, what got you interested in particular in that, in that topic? Well, I have, I suppose, a long history of advocacy against different kinds of injustices dating right back to the late 1960s when I founded a magazine for young people to give them a voice to speak up against the US-led war in Vietnam. And since then have advocated for, you know, social justice, human rights, environmental action, you know, speaking out on issues from HIV AIDS to drug policy reform, from the death penalty to climate change. And I think the idea that no one should be judged by their worst moment lies at the heart of my passion for criminal justice reform and many other issues. Societies struggle to find solutions to the challenge of reoffending, mass incarceration, excessive sentencing, especially for drug offences, and lack of opportunities for people with criminal convictions have not made society safer. And giving people a second chance in life through training and employment helps reduce reoffending. It allows those with criminal convictions to become useful members of society again. And I think business has a key role to play in this. Statistics are powerful. Many factors impact reoffending rates, drug misuse, employment, housing, social environment. Um, but with the dignity of work, reoffending rates drop very significantly. I was surprised to learn that maybe I should have known this previously, but England and Wales has one of the most extensive criminal record systems 
in the Western world, even the US apparently is more progressive than we are in England and Wales, which is not a place you really want to be, is it? It's incredible because America has the most uh, abysmal record. And I thought it was the worst, worst on earth. But if, um, if Britain's even worse, that, that is ghastly. You know, I think some of these things stem from the top. I mean, you know, I mean, drug reform. I've been in business for 55 years. And the, the war on drugs has been going on for roughly the same amount of time. And if I'd been running the war on drugs, it was such an abject failure. I would have closed it down 54 years ago. And uh, it's, it's just obviously does not work. The sad thing is that politicians think that being tough on drugs is a vote winner. And, and therefore, whilst they're in power, they're just not brave enough to do the right thing and treat drugs as a health problem, not a criminal problem. Whereas when they leave office, I mean, we, we, you know, I'm on a, on a commission called the Global Drug Commission. We've got 18 ex-presidents on the commission with one voice. They believe that Drugs should be treated as a health problem, not a criminal problem, and that all drugs should be effectively legalised with big health warnings on them to take it away from the underworld and to keep people out of prison. But I think that's one of the sort of big key issues, isn't it, really, that these ex-presidents, now they're out of power, they feel brave enough to stand up and say what they believe to be right. Um, I understand that, of course, when you're in power, it's very difficult to say some of the unpopular things because then you'd probably find yourself out of power quite quickly. Is there something in that? Do you sort of think, well, it's great that you're all ex-presidents, but... I've seen ex-presidents going along to, you know, to Downing Street and and uh, trying to persuade current uh, prime ministers to do something about it and sadly getting nowhere. And at least they're trying and they're trying to make up for you know, for the damage they caused when when they were in office. And it's up to, you know, business leaders and other people to do do their bit to try to educate the public so that they, so it becomes a vote winner, not a vote loser. I mean, Canada has just been very brave in, I, I can't remember which states, but one, one or two of the big states in Canada and said, we're going to decriminalise all drugs. If you have a drug problem, you know, come forward and we will help you. And we need countries like that to experiment in the same way that America over the last few years have finally started to legalise marijuana or decriminalise marijuana. And they haven't seen an explosion of use. And, and the money is going back into education and back into health. And uh, But Canada's gone a step further. And that's something that the Global Drug Commission, with all its research, believes should happen. You know, if, if someone's going to buy cocaine, they should buy it from the state. They should be taxed. They shouldn't go on, onto the street and buy it where they don't know what it's laced with, what damage it could do to them. You know, ultimately, that is what will happen with all drugs. And that's something the Global Drug Commission encourages. Do you have any idea when you think in the United Kingdom or England and Wales, which is our justice system, isn't UK, it's England and Wales, isn't it? Do you think that will ever happen? Do you think I'll see that in my lifetime? Do you think it will be my grandkids that might see that? I hope it will happen in your lifetime. I mean, if you just think of all the misery it will avoid. I mean, let, let, let me just give Portugal as an example. Uh, year 2000, uh, they had a big heroin problem. Prime Minister of Portugal goes on to television and says, from today, nobody's going to go to prison for taking heroin anymore. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to set up centres throughout Portugal. Uh, we're going to have needle exchange programmes. We're going to have people who oversee your fix, come along, uh, we'll make sure that you, you can 
uh, have your fix safely. And then when you're ready to be weaned off heroin, we will make sure that we send you to somewhere where that can happen. Within five years, it was a non-event. 95% of those people were, were useful members of society again. Uh, they'd been weaned off heroin. Um, people don't like being on heroin. I mean, once, that, once they're on it, they're desperate to get off it, but they, they need help. And it worked. You know, so I think examples like that, now, now we've got Canada to look to, America to look to, and then we just need brave politicians who can actually get out there and explain the stories like that. It's interesting, isn't it? It makes so much sense when you say we need to treat it as a health problem in the same way that, you know, alcohol is incredibly damaging, yet that's legal and people can still drink themselves to death and drink themselves to the point where they fall over and knock their teeth out. And I've often heard people say that if alcohol was sort of discovered today, it would be a class A drug. Yeah, I mean, alcohol was illegal in America for 15 years. Al Capone became famous because, you know, he was the equivalent of the drug barons of today with alcohol. And, you know, people went to went to prison for drinking alcohol. And yet, as you say, it is far, far more damaging than, say, cannabis. You know, it's actually far more damaging than most other drugs. So basically, I think just decriminalise them all tell people of the dangers, make sure that they're only sold at places maybe where, you know, you have to go and go to a chemist shop and, and get some advice and help. And then make sure that, the, you know, any tax that comes from it is, is put into alcohol centres or drug rehabilitation centres. I think it's just worth thinking of all the consequences of making something illegal. A lot of society is based on having a few things illegal. The police force could be two thirds less. The customs officers could be almost got rid of altogether. Prison offices could be reduced and prisons could be freed up. There is just so many different areas that could either disappear and those people could be put to useful other jobs if you decriminalised or legalised drugs. It will happen one day. The sooner it happens, the better. I mean, what the, what the Global Drug Commission is pushing for is different countries to experiment in different ways. And then we have the statistics to see. The Portugal statistic was incredibly good with heroin. The fact that Canada is doing this will have the statistics to be able to prove one way or the other. And the fact that many different states are doing very, many different approaches, that's great. Just circling back for a moment to the issue of employment of people coming out of prisons, you put your name to something called Fair Checks which was a campaign being run by Transform Justice about the DBS checks, the Disclosure and Barring Service, which for the listeners benefit is when you go for an interview and you basically have to say whether you have a criminal conviction or not, and how incredibly damaging that is for people when they come out of prison. They're trying to go on the straight and narrow. They need money, so therefore they need a job. And how sort of dysfunctional that whole system seems to have got and you were an advocate of that, that campaign, weren't you? And, and I'm just interested to know, sort of from a virgin point of view and from a business leader's point of view, your view on it has very much been, well, I would welcome people with a, a criminal conviction to a certain extent, obviously, depending on exactly what it was they've been convicted for. But could you say a bit more on that from a business leader's point of view and why you would, would encourage that or do encourage that in your companies? On the positive side, we've taken on a lot of people from prisons. And sometimes, you know, people say from Monday to Friday and they go back into prison at the weekends. Not one of them have reoffended. They are so appreciative that they have been given a second chance, uh, that they are, are very often the best 
you know, the best employees we have. And because they've got a job, they're not going to reoffend. They are appreciative. Now, some people may say, well, you've been lucky. And that may be the case. But I think we've had a 100% success rate as far as taking people on from prison or taking people on who've had past convictions and not reoffended. I came very close when I was 20 years old, 19 years old, messed up on some tax issues and could easily have got a criminal record. And if I had, would, I mean, I've employed over a million people in my life. <laughs> what would have happened to Virgin if these laws had stayed? Something I just discovered, which we're definitely trying to change. I contacted our airline and said, well, the other Virgin companies are doing great. Why are you not taking on people who've had criminal records? And it turns out that anybody working for airports or airlines are completely disbarred from taking on um, people with criminal records. And yet they're um, suffering a huge shortage. I mean, it's all over the news every single day, isn't it? The bags can't get on the planes. People are stuck on their half terms. Children aren't getting back to school because there aren't enough people. And then you've got all these people coming out of prison desperate for jobs. I was just thoroughly embarrassed that I didn't know this until two days ago. <laughs> Anyway, we're trying to find out, is it the government that's forcing this on us? Is it the airports? Or Anyway, we, we, we'll get to the bottom of it. For those people who sort of might well be thinking, sort of listening to this, well, hold on a minute. What if someone's been convicted of rape or an offence against a child and you don't want them to become a teacher? And of course, I think you and I are both saying, within reason, people should be given jobs. So it's not about the serious and recent crimes. It's about... A lot of the time, it's about the minor and old crimes. So in our country today, in England and Wales, if you've served one week for a fight you had when you were 19 years old, maybe in the student union or somewhere, that's going to come up on your record for the rest mm. of your life. Even if you get a caution, it comes up for the rest of your life, which does seem slightly bananas. Yeah, I mean, i just give you another example. I got a £5 fine under the 1916 Venereal Diseases Act and the 1889 Indecent Advertisements Act for mentioning the word venereal disease in public when I was 19, <laughs> year, 19 years old. We had a centre that helped people, young people with problems and, we, and if they had VD, we would uh, tell them which, which were the best clinics in their area to go to. But it just happened to be an archaic law. Because of that conviction... When I started an airline, I was allowed to start an airline, but because of that conviction, we couldn't take alcohol. America wouldn't allow us to take alcohol uh, and serve it to our passengers. I couldn't get an alcohol license. So <laughs> we, we used to fly double loads of alcohol on our planes to America in order to serve our passengers on the way back because I couldn't pick up alcohol in, in America. Anyway, the sorts of bizarre things that these things can lead to. I can see that you've always sailed <laughs> slightly close to the wind, which is probably why this is a, a topic close to your heart. That's definitely the case. I, I uh, like, like to push the limits. And also, I noticed that your father was a, a barrister and your grandfather was a judge. Actually, my grandfather was a high court judge. And in about 1920, he convicted somebody to death. And his biggest regret in life was, you know, having to put the black hat on and convict people to death under, under British law in those days and went to his grave being vehemently anti the death penalty and all, all that it entailed. And my father was 100% against the death penalty. And because I've got a, a public voice, using that public voice to try to stop specific cases of the death penalty happening, but also to speak out more generally about trying to get the death penalty abolished. And today we had one good bit of news that the mandatory death 
penalty in Malaysia, which ourselves and and Tony Fernandez, who runs Air Asia, an airline and um, airline there, a friend of ours, uh, anyway, and the, and the others have managed to get abolished. There's still further work to do, but that that's a step in the right direction. You know, I think that you know business leaders must and should speak out on issues like this because we are around running our businesses for you know, 55, 60, 65 years, whereas generally politicians are only in in their jobs for two or three or four years in, in a particular department. And it's difficult for them to learn all they need to learn in that short period of time. Fortunately, now more and more business leaders are speaking out, which which I think is positive. Yeah, I noticed you're involved in something called the Business Leaders Declaration Against the Death Penalty. Mm. And is that to encourage business leaders to sort of sign up to exactly and make a commitment to what you're talking about? We have 250 business leaders who have put their name to saying that the death penalty should be abolished. In Europe, it was abolished about 70 years ago. The countries that are left doing it are countries like uh, North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, and I'm afraid a few states still in America. And the problem with the death penalty is, apart from the fact that it is proven not to deter people, a lot of mistakes get made. Um, I mean, I've been in a room in America with 155 people who were once on death row, and they've been proved to be innocent. They've been released from prison. You know, if it hadn't been for little bits of DNA evidence or other evidence coming forward, um, they, they would have been executed. And and it's impossible to know how many others were executed who were completely innocent. The best thing to do and, uh, is if somebody commits a, a heinous crime is lock them up for life and, and give at least give them a chance if they can be proved to be innocent to be released sometime in, in their lifetime. Yeah. And is it 140 countries have abolished the death penalty around the world? I don't know how many that leaves to go. But where are we sort of percentage wise, just roughly? The vast majority of countries have abolished the death penalty. And I think the majority of, of states in America have abolished it. I mean, it's, it, it, it is sad to see that a country like America um, should uh, still have a few states where they will still do it. It's, it's barbaric. It's um, strange how often... I still speak to people who say, well, it's a deterrent. And it's absolutely not, because if it was, people wouldn't commit the crimes that they do, regardless. If you look at Europe, uh, and which abolished it 70 years ago, I, I can't remember when the last sort of mass shooting was in, in, in Europe. Um, I think in you know, the 1995 or something was one, but the amount of people killed in Europe is vastly less than in the States in America where they have the death penalty. The other danger with the death penalty is that it's used for political purposes in some countries. There are a lot of people in places like Saudi Arabia and, and, and Iran that, that are executed very, very, very questionably. The safest thing to do is just to get rid of it. I've had people to Necker Island who spent 32 years on, on death row uh, for a crime they didn't commit, you know, most gentle, delightful people. You know, what a nightmare for them. And it also drags it out. You know, if, if, if somebody actually had killed somebody, by the time they've gone through appeal after appeal after appeal, it, it drags it out for relatives of the person who was killed. And if you talk to those people, by and large, they would rather have the person locked up and be able to get on with their lives. Again, just sort of going back to Virgin as a company, when it comes to these sorts of issues that you champion, 
you know, you employ so many people. I imagine that not everybody in your companies sort of think the same way as you do, perhaps. And I was just wondering from a from an HR point of view and the recruitment and taking on people from prison, how tricky that's been. Because I remember working with someone from Virgin and James Timpson when Ken Clark was the Secretary of State for Justice and, you know, the government were talking about this issue a lot. And the conversation kept coming up about HR and how to get through HR if actually they weren't very keen on recruiting people in from prisons. I would say the vast majority of people at Virgin are really proud of working for a company that does this. And if there are exceptions, which I've personally never come across, but if there are exceptions, I think that very quickly they'll realise that, you know, once they get to know the individual personally, that it's the wonderful thing for a company to do. So it hasn't been an issue. I first ended up doing it based on, a, you know, going to see a, uh, prisoners in a prison in Melbourne many years ago and then learning about a company in Australia that had employed 800 people from that prison um, for truck, truck driving toll. I was the name of the company. And, you know, I went and met the head of Toll and he just said it's, you know, the, the, the company has benefited massively and employees generally have been so, so positive about, about them doing it. And maybe it was, the, you know, the best thing, best thing that they'd done. I mean, I mean, something he's most proud of. I'm sure Timpson is the same way. You know, he, he'll say the same thing. And I think people at Virgin would say the same thing. Yeah, and it's that extraordinary thing. I remember talking to someone about it saying, well, if you recruit for my prison, I can tell you more about the person that you might be interviewing and thinking about than someone who just walks off the street who can tell you anything they want. I can tell you how they've behaved for the last year or two. I can tell you things about them that you would just never, ever be able to know recruiting, you know, in, in the normal way. And I sort of thought that was quite an interesting way of looking at it as well. And of course, just because someone doesn't have a criminal conviction doesn't mean to say they're not going to do something untoward whilst working for your company. You know, it's we're all human, aren't we? 100 percent. Yeah, they just may not have got caught. (laughs) Exactly. And I think, you know, particularly with sort of disclosing a conviction, you know, it can create such an insurmountable barrier to accessing careers. And you want some wrote I noticed uh, something and you said part of rehabilitation is the is the dignity of work and I think governments banned that word around a lot don't they rehabilitation yet we seem to be stuck in this place where there's so many barriers particularly with the sort of DBS checks that they actually just don't seem to want to change like just the sensible thing of saying okay well how about removing cautions off a DBS check that would be helpful or drug offences. There's a long list of things you could remove. You know, just leave the most heinous crimes on, on the list. That would make sense. Well, listen, Richard, it's been so lovely talking to you today. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for discussing all these issues with me. Uh, as you know, they're close to my heart as well. And I really um, appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. You've done wonderful, wonderful, wonderful work in this area. So thank you. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. After speaking with Richard, I wanted to learn more about the Fair Checks campaign and understand what impact current employment legislation is having on those with a criminal record. So I spoke with supporter of the campaign, Paula Harriet. Paula is the head of prisoner involvement at the Prison Reform Trust. We spoke about her personal experience of this issue and the impact she sees this issue having on individuals with experience of prison who are trying to move on with their lives. 
I'm Paula Harriet. I work at the Prison Reform Trust as the lead for prisoner involvement. And I work there to make sure that the experiences of prisoners and people affected by the criminal justice system are heard loudly in the policy world and also in the public narrative. And I, I do that work because I'm, I'm very personally affected by the work itself. And, and that's because I'm a former prisoner. I served a sentence between 2004 and 2012, four years in prison and four years on licence. So this isn't just my professional job. It's like, it feels like a personal mission. And you're involved in so many different things. I know that. But you're also involved in the Fair Checks movement, um, which is run by Transform Justice and Unlock. Could you tell me a little bit about what Fair Checks is and, and why it's important? So Fair Checks is a, um, a campaign um, to create legislative change so that people are not unfairly treated by the disclosure process. So at the moment, if you have a criminal record, quite often people, if you go for a role, people will seek um, a disclosure from the Disclosure and Barring Service. It's called, the old-fashioned thing is the CRB check. Oh, yeah, Criminal the Records D Bureau. But it's now called the DBS service. And what can happen is that many, many years after your offence is spent, that offence in an enhanced disclosure will still be there. Okay, so even if it's like, what, I don't know, you get involved in a bit of a punch-up when you're 18... Yeah, it can yeah. still affect you when you're 50 going for a job. Absolutely, yeah. So even after they're spent on enhanced checks, they emerge. So on a simple check, they won't if they're spent, but if they're on enhanced, they will. And most people only apply for enhanced checks. So they're generally used to check out people's suitability if they're going to work with vulnerable people or they're going to have contact with vulnerable people. So then we go for what's called the enhanced disclosure, which shows up all of your offences, spent or not, and also can have like intelligence about you um, that is um, being collected by the police. You know, that your contact with other known criminals or, you know, stuff you might, <laughs> you might not even know that <laughs> about yourself could be on there. So um, it can be a traumatic experience to have an enhanced DBS check because what will happen is things that, for instance, for me, you know, I came out of prison in 2008. My sentence on probation finished in 2012. But I will still be asked for an enhanced DBS check. And sometimes, you know, 10 years post the release from prison, having had a career in, in the criminal justice sector, even for me, it brings me back to that moment of feeling like I'm being assessed for my suitability. And it, it can be quite re-traumatising. You can be taken back to a moment in time that you, you feel like you've moved on from, but you're anchored to that. I mean, I do get very nervous about it myself, which is bizarre because like, there's, there's no reason for me to be nervous about it. And I think that nervousness is like... I'm so much more than that. And it's embarrassing. The worst thing that you've ever done in your life and the thing that's had the most grievous, grave consequences for you, for that to be public knowledge in your new employment, it can be, it's a personally difficult thing to do. I do understand why people need to do that. You know, like as a citizen of the country, you know, I want to make sure that 
people, I suppose, you know, who've committed sexual offences um, are not working with vulnerable people, children, you know, that we're very clear about managing the risk of employing people with convictions. You know, I think being clear about managing the risk is different from using the DBS check as a mechanism to restrict their employment. Exactly. Like all these things, it comes down to being sensible. We all think about keeping our children safe or our elderly loved ones if they're in Mm. care homes and being looked after by different people. Of course. So I don't think anyone's saying, are they, that, that that's not important. What we are saying is that there's some people who've done things when they were much younger that are not risky that should not prevent them from being able to move on and get a job. Absolutely. And that these sort of checks should be fair and proportionate. You know, and that's so I think, for instance, you know, uh, I worked with a, a young woman recently who at the age of 16 was outside school having an argument outside the chip shop. It got a very heated. The police got called. The girls all got arrested, taken to the police station charged with a fray, which, which within that it says, uh, it said something like using abusive and threatening language, um, took a caution at the police station. So didn't go for a trial in the magistrate's court, took a caution, thinking that a caution's nothing, doesn't matter. Fast forward 15 years, to, she's now 30, has a role working in the National Citizenship Service, going into schools, recruiting young people to go on national citizenship services, built a career, is a mom, two kids, you know, it's all in pence and purposes, an upright citizen. And she told me, every time I go to a new school to do recruitment, to do an assembly presentation, to meet the parents, I have to bring my DBS check. And I bring it into the school and hand it over to a receptionist And I quake with fear that somebody's going to look at that and go, you can't come in. And that has happened to her. She's been asked to leave the school premises on several occasions while that DBS check, that piece of paper is shown to the headmaster or the headmistress or is shown to the governors for them to determine whether or not she poses a risk to children. And I think that's disproportionate use of the DBS checks. And that's what Fair Checks is about. It's saying there's a point at which those type of fences should not emerge on people's DBS checks. Um, That after a significant period of time when people haven't committed any further offences, they should be expunged. Well, exactly. The government's always talking about how we rehabilitate people, how we help people to move on, yet... You know, what Fair Checks is calling for, is it not, is legislative change as well, which really yes. then would protect it in law. If we don't have some clear guidelines here, You leaving it up to the discretion of individual employers is slightly more dangerous, isn't it? You know, because everybody will interpret that in different ways. So like the young person that I was talking about in question, you know, does work in multiple schools, but certain schools are hesitant and certain schools feel nervous. And so getting some clear guidance here around the legislation for proportionate fair checks, that's what this campaign's about. And I think it's really important because as a person with lived experience of a conviction, I know how stigmatising and I know how, a, how embarrassing it is for that to be in the public domain when you haven't chosen to put it in the 
domain. I know what it feels to be outed. I've been outed when I first came out of prison and I thought I could get on with my life without anybody knowing that I'd been to prison. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, people can Google you and they can find out and, you know, gossip emerges in the, in the, in the staff room or in the, in the, in the, in the team and you're outed, you know, publicly. So I know how that feels, how frightening that is. So it's really important, like, to protect people, to enable them to move on. And I think that's what we need. We need, and we need, we need clarity about what what really is, what constitutes risk, and how we can manage that risk as well. Um, and and that's, I think, that's also part of the Fair Checks campaign, just to make it easier for people to move on, to educate employers about how to employ people with convictions safely, safely for them, safely for their firm, safety for the public. And saving, creating safety and mental and emotional and psychological safety for people with convictions as they try to reintegrate that. Yeah. And obviously it's helpful when you have people like Sir Richard Branson. Uh, you know, he talked about the importance of doing this and being a champion at his organisation, mm-hmm. Virgin. How important is it that people like Sir Richard come out and uh, and sort of bang the drum? God bless Richard Branson for saying that out loud because there's such hesitancy about people in prison because the narratives that we are fed about people in prison is that they're all useless and there's you know when I was in the sun Edwina I will never forget the headline it was drug lag let out to work in drugs rife Hansworth you know imagine having that like you're up against that so you know we've got we don't have a really rich understanding in the public about what going to prison, who goes to prison, for how long, what the process of recovery and rehabilitation actually is, and how there are many people who go to prison and they're one-time offenders and they go on to lead perfectly good contributing citizens lives of contributing citizens we don't we don't have those stories in the press what we have in the press is stories of people where the system has failed where they failed the systems failed them and and so the revolving door the recurring nature of that criminality is 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 what we have and we don't have the stories of the people who want to make it and we don't have enough understanding of how we inhibit that them to make it and I think you know, a lot of my work's around voice and a lot of work's about getting those stories out there. You know, it definitely has not been easy for me to, to get to this point, Edwina. You know, like, honestly, it really hasn't. And it really hasn't. <laughs> it's been, like, full of setbacks and full of pain and, I don't know, and full of, like, just feeling like I've got to work harder than everybody else to impress people about how competent I am and, you know, being scared that people will use my past as an instrument to block my career rather than recognising it was a period in my life and I've moved on from that period and that I don't pose any risk at all because actually, in some ways, you know, that story, was it the, cat, the, 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 the poacher turned gamekeeper is the safest pair of hands to protect you. Sometimes people won't be maybe as strong as you are and it will have the adverse effect. They're busy trying to go off, change their lives, get a job, go on the straight and narrow. And then if you're blocked that many times, you do think, what is the point? 
these systems that are set up to help people to fail, which irritates me so much. And that's why we need the legislative change, but we also need the cultural change. We need the we need people like Richard Brunson, like so I said, God bless Richard Brunson, you know, like powerful influencers who who keep it real and say, Do you know what? These people deserve a second chance. These people have, you know, made mistakes, but you know what? We've got to crack on and do something about it. And shout out to people like James Timpson, you know, he's the chair of the Prison Reform Trust who does exactly the same, you know, and, and puts his money where his mouth is and it actually employs people in these shops who have come from prison. So, and, you know, my own organisation where 40% of the people who work at the Prison Reform Trust are people who've uh, been in prison in the past. So... You know, it can be done and, and, and we just need to look for the examples of how it can be done safely. We need to, you know, I'd ask people to be more compassionate, Edwina, to people who've been to prison. You know, it's so easy to go to the really negative stereotypes, but maybe you just need to pause and think about the, the person who's involved there. And Yeah, and, and not to form your views on people as put out by the tabloids, right? And I don't say that lightly because, you know, they are very widely read newspapers, some of the ones out there that you'll, you'll know who I'm talking about. Yeah. But people can then fall into a position, I think, of thinking that, you know, the streets are just full of murderers and that everyone's a paedophile and that, you know, actually we live in an incredibly unsafe country. That's just simply not true. The vast majority of people coming out of prison aren't going to go back. They want to do well. They're doing everything that they can and they just don't want the hurdles thrown in their way every day. It's like being branded, isn't it, going to prison? You're branded and whatever you do, it's really hard to move away from it. You know, for me, I've just sort of decided rather than be outed, I'd rather just tell people up front. I mean, it has some bizarre, it has some bizarre impacts <laughs> doing that. Like, for instance, like I've lived on the same street um, for 25 years. And, you know, when I went to prison, my neighbours knew I went to prison. Um, and they actually, my neighbours on one side wrote to me and, 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 you know, kept in touch. But then recently, some new neighbours moved in on the other side. And it's like they, they say, oh, could your kids come and babysit maybe? You know, they want to, you know, invite you over for, to parties and whatever. And, and there's a point in which I think, do I tell them? Because if I haven't, if I don't tell them and I build a relationship with them and then they find out, A, it looks like I've been inauthentic. But the other thing is maybe they won't be able to handle it. Maybe they don't want to have a new friend who went to prison for drugs. Maybe they don't want that in their lives. They would be frightened to have me around their kids or something. You don't know. Do you know what I mean? And 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 I think I feel frightened to build relationships with people where that's not on the table from the get-go because the risk of, of those relationships breaking down, whether they're personal or whether they're professional, yeah, whether they're in the workspace, you know, it's it's quite big. You know, I, I had another example to tell you about, about being approached by a CEO of another company that was delivering, had a contract to do some delivery work of sunny bins and whatever. And they had a person who was, who'd worked with them for years uh, where you didn't need to declare your convictions. And then he got a promotion. And with that promotion and the new responsibilities, a DBS check was part of the protocol. 
And it turned out that he'd been to prison when he was 17. He was now 40 years old. And they were having, like, really worried about how to deal with that. Whether it constituted a risk to the company, whether it constituted a risk to the contract, or whether how other members of staff would now view that individual as a consequence of finding out about something that he'd done 23 years ago. And and I thought, well, we really need to do some education about compassion, about... And so that's why I said Richard Branson's great. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and clearly, you know, it constituted a risk to their moral compass. The CEO, I've got to give him absolute credit. He was very supportive. He was saying to me, I don't understand what the problem is. But right. there were people who were nervous about, they'd never, ever employed somebody with convictions before. So were unsure about the law, unsure about whether they were on the right side of the law, whether... You know, the fact that um, a a role asked you for a DBS check meant that if anything came up, they automatically needed to sack somebody. Well, actually, I explained to them, when you ask for a DBS check, you're asking for information to guide your decision about whether to offer that somebody employment. So it's information. It doesn't mean you're, you're barred because you have a criminal conviction. It means unless you're barred because you're on, there are certain categories of offence that constitute you go on barred list but they're very very few and that would come up on the dbs check if you are on a barred list but you know mostly it's information to guide your decision and i think we need that's about what the fair checks is about the proportionate use of these checks you know how much information do we need to give to people years after the offense but also i think the other part is to use these dbs checks in a way that's fair fair to the individual and fair to their journey and acknowledge second chances and the demonstration that people have learnt and moved on. Yeah, the Fair Checks movement has got um, a very good website, fairchecks.org.uk. And when I was having a little look at that, I was very interested to find out, a couple of stats, not too many, one in six people in this country have some form of criminal record. One in six. And then one in three men of a working age have a criminal record. I mean, that's astounding. How is anyone meant to employ anybody? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just goes to show, doesn't it? It's like the conversation, just like I told you with my neighbour, it's the conversation that's hidden and that we don't want to admit to some... You know, like, I felt so scared to say that, you know, to her even though you can Google me and find out, but it's still on a personal level, you know, it's nerve-wracking. And so I understand why people, you know, that that is shocking that so many people have a criminal record. But I understand why we don't talk about it, because of the embarrassment, because of the fear of rejection, the yeah. fear of being judged, the fear of being sacked, <laughs> the fear of being yeah. seen as unsuitable. The fear, you know, all of these things, you know, and then they bring you back to that point in your life when you weren't in a good place and and all of that might have been true, but it isn't true now. And I think recognising people go to prison and move on, you know, that's an important conversation that we're probably not having enough in the world. And people who are listening who might be wondering, what on earth could I do? Um, there's a couple of things that you can do. You can go to the website, fairchecks.org.uk and donate. That would be very welcome. 
Um, contact your local MP and tell them why you think it's unfair. Bang that drum with your local MP. That would be useful. Also, there's a petition on the website. So the petition could be signed. You can share it amongst friends and family. That would also be really useful. Paula, it's been an absolute pleasure as always to have you on. And thank you so much for being the vital voice of those who quite frankly don't have one. You are amazing. Thank you, Edwina. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.